Hey everyone, Jose Nino here, and today I'm joined by Neboja Malic. He's a freelance writer with a particular focus on Serbian history and geopolitics. But before we start going into Serbia, Balkan geopolitics, and broader international relations matters, Neboja, give my audience a brief rundown of your bio and what you currently do. Sure thing. I'm happy to be here. So I started writing back in 99 during the NATO war uh, over Kosovo, um, having just graduated from college and uh, became a columnist, uh, Balkans columnist at first, and then sort of a broader international European and Russian affairs guy at uh, antiwar.com, where I stayed till about 2015 when I was hired by RT. And uh, I worked for RT up until March this year when uh, RT America was compelled to cease operations uh, due to circumstances surrounding the conflict in Ukraine. So I've been a freelancer ever since then, but I've been working in um, the field of uh, analyzing media, propaganda, reporting, foreign policy, uh, U.S. foreign policy specifically, but also European affairs and Russian affairs for over 20 years now. Great stuff. So, yes, based on the work that I've seen you publish on RT, your forte is definitely like the Balkan area, especially Serbian politics. For those in in my audience who are uninformed, could you explain what took place in the Balkans throughout the 90s that's particularly relevant to the present geopolitical environment that we are seeing breakdown in Russia and Ukraine? Of course. So I, when I said I graduated from college in 99, that's because I had a front row seat prior to that to the collapse of Yugoslavia in the early 90s. And I came over to the US in 96, having uh, just lived through the war in Bosnia. Basically, Yugoslavia was one of those post-World War II states that was officially communist, but diplomatically and politically aligned with the West and was a buffer zone between NATO and the, and the Warsaw Pact countries. And during the Cold War, this was incredibly useful to both sides. But after the reunification of Germany, it all of a sudden stopped being interesting, especially to the West, and the East didn't really have a say in it much. And so Western powers started encouraging separatism. And from 1990 onwards, you had parts of Yugoslavia which had been structured following the model of the Soviet Union, starting to break off, and you had conflicts between them over borders based on um, ethnic composition and so on and so forth. Uh, Obviously, one of the bloodiest was in Bosnia, uh, which started in uh, the spring of 1992, so about 30 years ago, and ended only in the uh, fall of 1995. And it's it's, the ending is credited to U.S. intervention. Uh, The U.S. likes to believe that it was the bombing of Bosnian Serbs that led to negotiations. But uh, the Dayton Peace Agreement sort of stitched Bosnia back together and made its three communities live side by side in a fairly uneasy peace that nonetheless persists to the present day. And at that point, we thought this was the end of it. This was done. The book was closed. The U.S. sat Serbia and Croatia down at a, a negotiating table. Treaties were signed, and that was good. But what ended up happening just two years later is that uh, first the German government, again, because they had initially supported the separatist Yugoslavia as well, and then the American government started supporting another separatist movement, this time the ethnic Albanians in Kosovo, which is a province of Serbia. It was sort of set up as a separate province, just like Chechnya was in Russia, by the communists. But it wasn't one of the six federal states of Yugoslavia as such. and. Thanks to some legislative slate of hand, the European Union had decreed back in 92 that it was the republics who were internationally recognized subjects and Yugoslavia was declared to be in dissolution, which is a fairly elegant in their minds way of just killing a country without actually doing so and keeping their hands clean. Imagine if somebody tomorrow, if China tomorrow decided that every single U.S. state is now a separate independent country and that the U.S. government doesn't exist. Chaos would ensue, and it's precisely what happened in Yugoslavia. Well, anyway, back in 99, in the spring, NATO, 
an alliance that had nothing to do with Yugoslavia. It, it, it was not in its area. It was none of its members were affected. Nothing was had touched on it at all. Decided that it was obligated to prevent what they called a humanitarian catastrophe, accusing the Yugoslav government of oppressing ethnic Albanians by fighting their armed rebellion, and sent them this ultimatum that you know they either allow um, a referendum and independence within three years and a NATO occupation force in Kosovo itself, as well as giving it free passage through the rest of the country, which includes present-day Serbian Montenegro, or face war. And Belgrade said, well, this is you know something that Austria-Hungary asked us to do back in 1914, and we refused at the price of war, so we're refusing again. And for the next 78 days, NATO bombed Serbia targeting both initially military targets, but also bridges, power stations, factories, uh, oil refineries, civilian infrastructure, hitting markets, hitting refugee columns, which they claimed was a mistake, but of course they would. And basically running out of targets and, tr- and trying to ramp up the bombing in the, in the words of NATO generals, trying to compel the Yugoslav leadership into capitulating. And what happened in June of 99 is that basically Russia, which was trying to mediate a peace treaty and had, according to this one interview uh, by a a retired paratrooper general who was part of the delegation, they had actually managed to negotiate some concessions. And then Yeltsin's government phoned them and said, you know, just do whatever the Americans order. And they were forced to give in and basically told Serbia, you're on your own. That Serbia being senior partner in the Yugoslav Federation at the time. So what ended up happening was NATO occupied Kosovo without occupying the rest of Serbia. And in 2008, it declared it an independent country, uh, which has been recognized by about 100 or so countries so far, but not the UN, not Russia, not China, basically not, not by the majority of the world's population, and crucially not by the UN itself. Well, the particular conflict which completely destroyed any pretense that NATO was what they, you know, what they call the defensive alliance. That the was, alliance, yeah. <laughs> uh, responsible to the UN. I mean, it violated the UN charter, uh, the Helsinki Final Act, NATO's own charter, basically broke every single international law in the books. And a few years later, key foreign policy operatives in Washington, people like John Norris of the International Crisis Group and his uh, mentor, Strobridge Talbot, the point man uh, for all matters Russia in the Clinton State Department, flat out confessed that the point of the war in Yugoslavia wasn't to protect ethnic Albanians. That was a convenient pretext. The point was to smash Yugoslavia and regime change Belgrade to send a message to everybody in Eastern Europe, but elsewhere in the world as well, that there will be no deviations from the end of history neoliberal orthodoxy that every government basically had to do whatever Washington told it to do, or else. And ironically, this had the complete opposite effect on Russia, because in August of that year, of 1999, the visibly ailing and alcoholic President Yeltsin appointed a heretofore unknown former spy named Vladimir Putin to be his prime minister. And by Christmas, he had resigned, and Putin became president. And next thing you know, He's completely reversing course and leading Russia into rebuilding itself on its own terms, reclaiming its sovereignty, uh, rejecting NATO's supremacy, rejecting U.S. unipolar supremacy in the world, and, you know, 22 years later, practically waging a de facto World War III as embodied in the proxy war in Ukraine. I see now... For this type of conflict, there's always this type of like there's always going to be like some type of like justification, like a WMD moment to justify like an intervention. Was there any such incident leading up to the bombing of Serbia that NATO used to justify punitive military action against it? Oh, but of course there was. So back in 98, the original ethnic Albanian rebellion led by a man named Adem Yashari, uh, who had set up an organization called uh, the Kosovo Liberation Army, 
was basically crushed when Yashari and his militants were surrounded in the village, and they fought with the Serbian police and were killed. This was used as a pretext for the U.S. to threaten bombing Serbia. Basically, in, in uh, October uh, 1998, Richard Holbrook, the same negotiator who, who brokered the peace in Bosnia, went to Belgrade and said, look, you know, if, if you don't return your troop army to the barracks and your police to their police stations and let this international monitoring mission set up shop in Kosovo, we'll, we will bomb you. And the leadership in Belgrade said, well, we, we want to be reasonable. There's no need for this. You know, fine, we'll let your observer mission go. And it's going to be an observer mission of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, the same outfit that would, you know, 15 years later be deployed in Ukraine to monitor the Minsk agreements. And we all know how that ended. Well, it was the same situation this time. The OSCE was led by a U.S. diplomat, in quotes, named William Walker, who was not a diplomat. He was a military intelligence operative. And Walker literally helped the KLA uh, stage the so-called Rachak massacre. There was a village of Rachak, also in Kosovo, where the KLA fighters had fought a pitched battle with the Serbian police and the military and lost. And they summoned Walker to the site, and he declared that these were innocent civilians who were shot down and cold, murdered in cold blood by, by Serbian security forces. And therefore, this had to stop and NATO had to intervene to stop you know, a genocide or human rights abuses or whatever. And it was only later on that the Finnish pathologists who were summoned to do autopsies basically said, no, these were fighters who fired weapons and were killed in battle. But at that point, nobody cared because the deed had already been done. So Rachak was, was the pretext for the bombing. And then when the NATO attacks started, other claims followed up. There was um, a claim that Serbs were committing a massive ethnic cleansing of Albanians that were trying to expel the entire ethnic Albanian population. And there was a super secret plan called Operation Horseshoe that uh, you know brave Bulgarians managed to retrieve and sent to the German intelligence. And of course, later on, both the Germans and the Bulgarians admitted that, no, this was a complete fake. This was just a psyop. There never was such a plan. They invented it. And during the war itself, it was actually emerged that this was a fake because of a very simple linguistic slip-up. The Germans and the Bulgarians used the Croatian word for horseshoe instead of the Serbian one. They're almost the same, but not quite. And so um, throughout the war, and this would later become obvious from the Libyan experience in 2011, you had all of these propagandists, including a lot of the mainstream media, uh, the NATO spokesman who... Um, kept peddling fake news and misinformation throughout the conflict, later went on to work for the BBC and was replaced by another BBC journalist. They kept saying that, you know, ethnic Albanians were being massacred, thrown into mine shafts, uh, burned in these metalworking ovens, the shades of the Holocaust were being thrown left and right. And the Spanish forensic pathologists who came in to investigate these reports found a total of 2,000 people killed in the entire conflict. And the vast majority, they said, were actually KLA fighters. And later analysis of civilian casualties done by um, independent sources turned up that the KLA had actually killed more ethnic Albanians than the Serbian military and the police. The current uh, prevailing figure that gets quoted in Western media says, you know, 10,000 ethnic Albanian civilians were killed. This is absolutely not true. It was completely made up during the war. It was basically an estimate given by NATO and adopted as gospel truth. Now, mind you, this is 1999. At the time, the same Western media also reported that the Bosnian War had resulted in at least 250,000 casualties. This was gospel truth at the time as well. It wasn't until 2004 when it was quietly revised to under 100,000, I believe anywhere between 96 and 98,000, according to the final report by a NATO-funded researcher. And I remember very distinctly, I was blogging at the time, this was the dawn of the blogging age, and I had, had just reposted the translation of this Norwegian report that had questioned the orthodoxy and quoted the report by these Norwegian pathologists who estimated the figure at 102,000. And instantly, within a day, 
I was attacked by Reuters, Associated Press, AFP, all of these local journalists in the Balkans saying, how dare you? This is revisionism. We will show conclusively that it's much higher, blah, 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 blah. And of course, you know, within six months when the final report came out, it turns out that it was even lower than the Norwegian report and that their own reports for 10 years were complete fake news, but they never admitted to it. So in the final analysis, you know, when June 99 rolled around, you had all of this propaganda that went into overdrive to justify the NATO intervention by saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, we had to do this because the evil Serbs had massacred ethnic Albanians and, you know, 10,000 people died and NATO had to do something. And there was this whole responsibility to protect doctrine and a, you know, fake independent commission that was paid entirely by NATO that declared it uh, technically illegal, but morally legitimate. And they left it there and thought that they could get away with this because after all, who's going to stop them? Until in 2014, when Ukraine happened and Crimea seceded and decided to rejoin Russia in a referendum and they started objecting to this saying, oh, you can't change borders, this is, this is unheard of. Putin comes out and says, wait, didn't you change borders by force in Kosovo? And they didn't have a referendum and you did it completely illegally without international law and this is all pure as driven snow, and everything's above board and by the books, and you have no grounds to object to any of this. But of course, they didn't really agree with this, and they said, well, we don't recognize it, and therefore it's wrong. So you had this creation of a double standard in international law by the West, by NATO, by the US, very specifically because Washington is playing a lead role in this, literally the late... Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who was credited by the media for pushing for the conflict in the first place. And this was what uh, British historian Kate Hudson called a pattern of aggression back in 2003 when she said that, you know, Kosovo was the one that paved the way for Bush's invasion of Iraq. Because even though it was a different political party in power, he simply inserted the WMD trope as the justification and said, oh, we're, you know, we're doing this as a responsibility to protect in preemptive self-defense. So it wasn't a humanitarian intervention. It was a, you know, preemptive self-defense, whatever, but it was the same pattern. It's just people wouldn't recognize it at the time because of the partisanship. And then of course, after Iraq, you had Libya in 2011, where the exact same scenario played out. You had uh, NATO saying, oh, we're just trying to impose a no-fly zone for humanitarian reasons. And then the propaganda started with, you know, Gaddafi's troops mass raping people and genocide in Benghazi and, and so on and so forth. And all these stories that turn out to be complete lies. And they were very quickly unmasked to be complete lies thanks to widespread internet use. But it was too late by that point because Libya had been completely destroyed and handed over to warlords and it's in perpetual chaos even now. It's been over 10 years and, and the country is a complete ruin. And, you know, UN investigators found open-air slave markets for migrants from Central Africa, but nobody in the so-called civilized West seems to care. And then after that, you know, same, similar patterns were, um, could be observed in Syria, circa 2012, uh, 2013, in a run-up to Western intervention that didn't materialize, in part thanks to Russian counter-intervention and this diplomatic effort to get uh, rid of chemical weapons. But that's a whole different story. I'm just saying that Kosovo set up a pattern that was later used, and that pattern itself was mostly based on the intervention in Bosnia several years prior. And so really, it's not just because I lived through this myself, but it's literally outside authorities, scholars on both the left and the right, uh, not just in the US, but in Europe, in Russia, in China, have recognized this con continuum of behavior from the 1990s intervention in Yugoslavia to the present day. Now, Serbia historically has been an ally of Russia. Would you say that the punitive actions against it by NATO was also trying to send a message to post-Soviet Russia at the time? Absolutely. So in the eyes of, the, even though ironically, Serbian people and Russian people had sort of been at a out of tune, so to speak, 
ever since the Bolshevik Revolution in the Soviet Union set up the Soviet Union. So for better, almost 100 years, in the minds of American policymakers in the 1990s, Serbs were sort of a proxy for Russia. And as I said, ICG's Norris had written a book, I believe in 2003, with Talbot uh, writing this effusive foreword praising his scholarship and literally titled it Collision Course and explained that NATO's intervention was really about sending a message to Russia, but also the rest of the world. And dwelled on this whole interaction between Americans and Russians under the Yeltsin administration. And again, yes, the U.S. objective at the time does appear to be, based on these testimonials, to to send a message to Russia, and Russia was the real prize. And the secondary objective was to effect regime change in Belgrade and make sure that all of the Balkans and all of Eastern Europe basically followed the U.S. lead in organizing their societies and their economies and so on and so forth. And you know, Serbian leadership at the time under Slobodan Milosevic believed in this notion that, well, they're a sovereign state, they have right to draft their own policy, and clearly that the U.S. does not hold to that. But what's really important, and very few people know about this, is that not thanks to anything the Russian government at the time did, but NATO's bombing of Serbia caused a visceral emotional reaction among the Russian people. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, about a year before he died, gave an interview to one of the German tabloids, and I don't remember if it was Welt or Bildt or Stern, or I don't remember which one specifically, but he basically said, you know, when, when NATO bombs, the first NATO bomb dropped on Serbia, that woke us up from our decade-long dream about joining the West and becoming a part of the West. I'm paraphrasing, but that he, he basically said, this is the moment everything changed. And you have the political track in which Putin emerged as the authority and steered Russia in a different direction, away from the Western-backed oligarchs. But also you have this popular culture track in which, regardless of their internal political persuasion, whether they were communists or neo-monarchists or national Bolsheviks or whatever they chose to call themselves, Russians believed that NATO's attack on Serbia was an attack on Russia. and. Uh, you had things like the pop group Tattoo, which specialized in girl pop, putting together a song about, you know, please forgive me, my sister Yugoslavia, because I couldn't help you. You had books, and uh, a few years back, there was a blockbuster film called The Balkans Boundary, which was partly based on true events, but a fictionalized account of the special force securing this Pristina airport until Russian peacekeepers could arrive ahead of uh, the NATO troops after the armistice was signed in 1999. It's become part of Russian pop culture and collective uh, consciousness parallel to becoming a, an issue for Russian politics. A case could be made, and people have made it, that it was truly a watershed in relations between Russia and the West. And again, it's a great irony that in trying to assert absolute dominance in Europe, the U.S. ended up losing Russia, so to speak, because up until that point, they, they had absolute power and dominion over that country, and by bombing Serbia, they lost it. Yeah, that's actually pretty intriguing you note that, because that is a pretty good example of imperial overreach. Now, I want to talk about China, because this is like another thing that's largely overlooked in this entire conflict. If I'm not mistaken, there was a bombing of the Chinese embassy at the time. Was that an accident or was there a veiled message being sent there as well? So the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was hit by multiple missiles at one point during the conflict and several people were killed. NATO had officially apologized. They said they blamed it on obsolete maps that the CIA had had given them, uh, obsolete targeting information. China has never really accepted the apology. I have recently come across some Chinese scholarship uh, showing that Beijing never believed the explanation. At the time, they sort of coldly accepted it as because they weren't quite ready to confront the West. But since then, uh, it has been brought up repeatedly. 
uh, the Chinese ambassador in Serbia every year marks the incident. The foreign ministry in Beijing keeps pointing it out in their press briefings, uh, especially as of late. Basically, China doesn't buy it. They just don't buy the, the excuse that the CIA had obsolete maps, that you know NATO with its spy satellites and, and uh, all this other target information simply mistook a very prominent building of the Chinese embassy for something else. One theory that was floated at the time and has never fully been debunked was that it was a message that NATO had basically targeted the uh, transmission array because this came shortly after they tried to shut down Serbian television by bombing its studio in downtown Belgrade after successful, I don't want to call it a propaganda counterwar, but basically it was a war of narratives at the time, just like it is now. And they were trying to shut up any kind of information coming from Serbia contradicting NATO's narratives. And they bombed uh, the Serbian television, as I mentioned, killing over a dozen people. And uh, they targeted the transmission array on top of the Chinese embassy because uh, allegedly, and this is according to one of these rumors and conspiracy theories that, again, keep circulating, this was used to broad- rebroadcast Serbian signals and you know Serbian messages around the world. Again, this is one of those things that's never been proven or dis- disproven, but that is the theory still making the rounds after 20 plus years. And again, I've just recently seen Chinese scholarship on the issue that basically says that the NATO bombing of Serbia and specifically the bombing of the Chinese embassy has fueled Chinese resentment towards the West as well. Not quite to the extent as it has in Russia because of the relative distance and the fact that China and Serbia don't have quite such historic and ethnic and cultural ties, but definitely has has done damage to relations between China and the West as well. One other thing about the Balkan conflict that I found interesting from afar were some of like the other external actors involved, specifically and how they tapped into like the Muslim minorities in that area to project influence. If I'm not mistaken, there were several Islamic powers ranging from like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and even Turkey involved in this conflict. Could you speak on to the role they played throughout this conflict? Oh, absolutely. So the actual best piece on the subject quite possibly, in my opinion, was written by Brendan O'Neill of Spiked magazine back in 2008. He called it um, Hysteria Politics was part of the headline, and he had commented on the arrest of a Bosnian Serb leader, Radovan Karadzic, at the time, and used that as a sort of a hook to unspool this entire sordid history. I have personally seen Turks, Iranians, and Arabs in Bosnia, fighting together on the same side, much as they have had in Afghanistan previously, what happened was the war in Afghanistan ended in 1992. The Soviet Union had retreated in uh, 1989, and the government of Najibullah basically lost out to the warlords that would later become the Taliban by early 1992. And all of a sudden, all of these international jihadists that had been fighting in Afghanistan for years had nothing to do. And here was Bosnia, and you had this Western propaganda trying to prepare American, specifically American, but NATO intervention in general. And they were promoting this narrative of the West standing idly by while the Bosnian Muslims, one of the three communities that was fighting for control of the country and to define whether Bosnia should exist and how, that Bosnian Muslims were being victims of genocide perpetrated by the Christians, whether it was the Croats or the Serbs who fought each other as well, it sort of was immaterial at the point. And the Bosnian Muslim leader, Ali Begovic, was actually widely revered across the Islamic world, both by the Shia and the Sunni, as a political scholar, because in early 70s, years before an Islamic revolution in Iran, he had put together this manifesto saying that Muslims should reject secularism and secular nationalism because it had brought them nothing but humiliation and defeat and return to the glorious days of the Ottoman Empire and the Caliphate 
and only Islamic political structures can bring them prosperity, and there can be no coexistence between Western democracy or any other form of government and Islam. Well, he was jailed for that in Yugoslavia, but emerged in the 1990s as head of the largest ethnic party in Bosnia. And so he was propagating this throughout the Muslim world. He was basically saying, look, you know, Muslims are in danger. We're, we're being subjected to genocide. Western propaganda was arguing that Muslims in Bosnia were victims of genocide, but that was being done to set up Western intervention, sort of like a white knight in shining armor arriving to save the day. But it had the result of all of these international jihadists flocking to Bosnia because they felt the calling. They had just gone to Afghanistan, and so they moved to Bosnia, and jihad became internationalized. And when the Bosnian war ended in 95, you had, again, these people who were now persuaded that the West had actually betrayed the Muslims and wanted revenge on the great Satan. And then you had, you know, Al-Qaeda blowing up ships and embassies and there were even reports by a German reporter, I believe, that at least two of the named 9-11 attackers had actually fought in Bosnia on the side of the Muslims backed by NATO, obviously before the 9-11 attacks. And so you have this whole thread running through. But what O'Neill pointed out in 2008 is that, ironically, the propaganda that the Western media were setting up for them to come out as a white knight, and you had American lawmakers uh, championing the cause of Bosnian Muslims in Kosovo Albanians, who are also Muslim, and saying, look, you know, we, we don't hate Muslims. We're a friend of Muslims. Look, we helped create two Muslim majority states in Europe. You should love us and you should thank us. And jihadists all around the world should take note of this. We are your friend. This was, uh, I believe, the late Tom Lantosh of California who said this in a hearing. And yet, this very propaganda had actually motivated jihadists from around the world to join anti-Western causes and later flock to ISIS in Syria and, and you know, fight the, the Americans in Iraq and in Yemen and in Afghanistan. And it, it's just one of those, that propaganda in the Bosnian war is just one of the more epic, I, I want to describe it as an epic self-own, but it doesn't quite do have the gravitas of of the sheer amount of death it has produced ever since. It was just unbelievably stupid and harmful and counterproductive. Now, going to like the specifics about countries like Iran, how was um, Iran involved in the Balkan conflict and what are Serbian and Iranian relations like in the present? So interestingly, uh, modern day Serbia, which officially wasn't involved in the Bosnian war, despite U.S. insistence to the contrary, has reasonable relations with both Iran and, well, generally the Islamic world, because it's trying to continue the Yugoslav practice of non-alignment that its diplomacy inherited from earlier. And for all of the hostility that you've, you've had between Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example, or you know Turkey and Iran, and all of these other countries that were involved on different sides in the Syrian conflict. Ironically, Serbia as such doesn't have a problem with any of them per se today. And at the time of the Bosnian War, they didn't really have a problem with each other. They jockeyed for power. Iran, there was a report in 96, I believe, of an Iranian training center the Americans called it a terrorist training center near Sarajevo, the Bosnian capital, that was uh, discovered by uh, NATO peacekeepers and, and sort of broken up. And Iran's influence in Bosnia, I mean, they, they maintain an embassy, which is very prominent. But you, you could argue that afterwards, the Saudi influence, especially the, the Wahhabist uh, cult, sect of Islam, has been far more prominent. The Salafists, Wahhabis, however you want to term them, uh, have had a much stronger footprint in Bosnia, which well, most Bosnians are Sunni Muslims, and but they were of a different Sunni strain to the Wahhabism that's practiced in Saudi Arabia. And for a while there, I mean, I've seen them in person. You had men, you know, with long beards and short trousers and women fully veiled in, in Saudi fashion walking around the streets of Sarajevo. And, and then about six or seven years ago with the war in Syria, that stopped being such a prevalent trend and they moved 
uh, th- that presence was reduced to some villages and provinces. So ironically, you had Iran, the Saudis, and the Turks working together to help the Izabegovich government during the war, and then fell out over other interests later. You still have Turkey sort of treating Bosnia as its, you know, long lost patrimony from the Ottoman Empire days. Erdogan is is very much flirting with that idea every so often because on days when he's LARPing as Suleiman the Magnificent, but you know, Iranian influence is, is far less. I think they're they're far more involved in Syria, for example. And the Saudis are, have also sort of stepped back and focused their influence on both cultural issues and just acquiring land and, and industry in the Muslim part of Bosnia as a sort of an economics base. So it, it, there's definitely an underexplored dimension of the Muslim world's role in Bosnia, both conflicts and cooperation during the war and since. It's one of the more fascinating threads among the many threads that, that lead to the Balkans. Yes, that's one thing I've noticed about a lot of these like balkanization processes, if you will, is that this type, these type of state breakups do render these areas susceptible to external interference from like state actors or even like the amorphous NGO industrial complex. And this type of, as you mentioned before, this type of formula is, I've argued, is been in store for Russia as well, especially with all this talk about trying to decolonize Russia, break up Russia and all that. Well, that's certainly what Western NGOs attempted to do. And, and in fact, so the, the ironic thing here is that it was the agreement between Yeltsin and the leaders of Belarus and Ukraine at the time, both of whom very quickly lost power but were replaced by others, to basically dissolve the Soviet Union a, a, along the republic borders, even though the vast majority of people actually voted in a referendum to preserve it, uh, with the exception of the Baltic republics, who were basically the Slovenia of the Soviet Union, the vast majority of, of people in the Soviet Union voted to keep it. And yet you had Yeltsin and these two leaders saying, nah, we're just going to you know, set, set up our own separate republics. And they're the ones who pulled the trigger on this. And it was after that that the uh, Badenter Commission, which the EU set up to adjudicate the Yugoslavian crisis, and again, ironically, the, the irony is abound here, the uh, Yugoslav government had actually asked them to help, basically saying, look, you know, international law says this shouldn't be happening, this is against our constitution, can you confirm as a, you know authority on the continent, as a civilized society, whatever, that you know, this is wrong and shouldn't be happening? And instead, the Badinter Commission said, yeah, no, you guys just spontaneously combusted and no longer exist. And all of the separatist claims are hereby legitimate. And you trying to keep the country together, you're in the wrong. Imagine if somebody had said that to Abraham Lincoln back in you know, 1861. So that was unexpected. And it, uh, in an echo of this, you had the Serbian government that emerged from the U.S.-backed color revolution in 2000, because the regime change in Belgrade wasn't accomplished by the bombing, by the war. It was achieved about a year and a half later through different means, through political means, through a color revolution. Basically, you had a mob of people storm the Serbian capital, burn the voter rolls, and insist that their candidate had won the election, and, oh, look, we've destroyed the evidence, so you have to take our word for it. And because the target of this revolution was Slobodan Milosevic, the West said, oh yeah, this is perfectly legit. This is you know, a democratic revolution. You must go. And it turned out that both the Serbian police and secret services and the military had been infiltrated by the CIA. And they all said, yeah, we can't do anything about this. You'll have to step down. And so Milosevic stepped down, was later sent illegally extradited to the war crimes tribunal. But again, I'm, I'm sort of drifting off here. The point is that the, the subsequent Serbian government asked the UN for opinion on the legality of Kosovo's declar- declaration of independence. And they asked a very clear question. Specifically, did the UN provisional government set up under this resolution that guaranteed Serbia's territorial integrity have the right to declare independence the way it did? And the International Court of Justice, which is supposed to be this impartial international institution with impeccable, unimpeachable credentials, 
basically redefined the question in order to satisfy the US and its allies. And it said that it was a group of citizens who declared independence, and the international law is mum on whether that's explicitly forbidden. Well, that's not what Serbia asked. Serbia very specifically asked about the provisional government. But they simply redefined the provisional government as just a group of ethnic Albanians representing themselves. And so the famous decision of the International Court of Justice saying that, well, you know, it's not strictly speaking illegal, is actually what one of the dissenting judges from Africa called a a judicial sleight of hand. And uh, just a few months ago, President Putin of Russia said, you know, the, the West didn't object when Kosovo declared independence and they had the UN court declared that it's perfectly fine under international law. I don't see what their objection is to the two Donbass republics doing the same. And immediately people were like, oh, how, how dare you say this? It was a completely different situation. Well, it's a completely different situation if you get to redefine the terms. But I'm sorry, one of the things that the Russia is currently insisting on that used to be perfectly normal up until 20 years ago is that words mean something. And you can't just change definitions of words if you don't like the facts on the ground or you know the, the state of affairs. You can't just redefine them out of existence and set it up so that you're always right and the other side is always wrong. And this is a problem with U.S. internal politics today, but it's been projected to international relations for decades, starting with the Balkans. Yep, like it, you really can't understand the present geopolitical insanity we see at the moment without really grasping what took place in the Balkans. And now let's transition over to the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. We're already several months into it. And what do you make of the current conflict in Ukraine? Well, let me just add one more thing. What's particularly horrifying is that you can't really understand much of what's happening around the world, including the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, without understanding what happened in the Balkans in the 1990s, and yet it's become a complete black hole. Not even the the journalists and political dissidents who have renounced all of their previous work have renounced their previous work in the Balkans. They still stick by it. It's just one of those things that is not discussed in the U.S., and when it's brought up, It's basically, oh yeah, we did the right thing, we did nothing wrong, everything's fine. And they completely ignore all the implications of what we just discussed. Now, the Russians, on the other hand, have not ignored this, and they have continued the scholarship, and they have extrapolated things from the happenings in Yugoslavia. And so, in my eyes, I've been following this situation from 2014, or rather late 2013, when the second color revolution was set up in Ukraine. Back in 2004, there was an orange revolution in Kiev that also mirrored the one in Serbia four years prior, and you literally had Western media outlets like The Guardian saying, oh yeah, this is the same exact thing that happened in Belgrade, the US has developed a technique for winning other people's elections, and this is how it's done, and all of these NGOs, and the National Endowment for Democracy, and the National Republican Institute, and the National Democratic Institute, and John McCain, and all these other people, you know, they, they go in and they use the NGOs to manufacture this people power protest and they topple governments and this is called democracy. Well, fast forward to 10 years later and the government in Ukraine is put before an impossible choice. They can either make a really bad trade deal with the EU for a promise of a possibility of maybe one day negotiating the theoretical likelihood of perhaps someday joining. And a current free trade agreement with Russia, which is far more profitable. And the president of Ukraine at the time says, well, the EU is offering me a bad deal. I'm going to stick with Russia, possibly hoping to get a better bargain from Brussels. But we never will find out because you had these mass trade demonstrations. You had these armed fanatics worshipping Nazi ideology who set police officers on fire and shot them from snipers. And, you know, demanded regime change. And President Yanukovych blinked and said, fine, I'll resign and we'll have early elections. We'll have the French and the German governments broker this agreement and have a provisional government in place. And then he leaves Kiev and goes 
to his uh, home base in Donetsk. And next thing you know, you have these uh, militants storming the government and installing their own and completely ignoring the power sharing agreement. So this is this is what Moscow has called a coup because it was. And you have Victoria Nuland being caught on tape saying, oh, we're going to put this guy here. This guy can't be in power. This guy should have this ministry and we need to bring in somebody to midwife this thing. Maybe let's see if we can bring in Biden cursing out the EU. You know, who, who cares what they say? Who cares what they think? And she never denied that she said that. They just said, oh, this is Russian hackers, but the tape was authentic. And at this point, you have Crimea seceding from Ukraine, to which it was handed over by the communists in the 50s, and holding a referendum in which the vast majority of people said, yes, we want to return to Russia. And the West saying, no, we don't recognize this. Well, why? Is it because procedure wasn't followed? It's like, no, it was illegally annexed by Russia because we say so. So right there, you have a problem. And the next thing you have, the crisis in Donbass, these two regions of Donetsk and Lugansk, but also, I mean, there were protests against the coup regime in Kharkov and Odessa as well, and other Ukrainian cities. It's just that in those places, the government, or rather the you know, combination of soccer hooligans and neo-Nazi militia that was backing the government managed to drown it in blood. In Odessa, literally, they, they torched the building with protesters to the ground and, and killed a whole bunch of people in the house of the trade unions and then boasted about burning them alive. In Donetsk and Lugansk, on the other hand, you had local militia organizing and offering resistance. And you had this initial phase, and Moscow, for whatever reasons at the time, said, no, we don't, we don't want to do the same thing as we did in Crimea. You guys should negotiate with Ukraine. Well, the Ukrainian government basically said, we don't negotiate, you are terrorists, you will die, and we will retake the land that is ours, and who cares if you're on it or not? Well, they tried to crush them by force twice, in two major offensives, one in August of uh, 2014 and one in early 2015, and they failed disastrously both times. It was a complete, complete fiasco. Both the Ilovaisk and the Baltseva cauldrons were just textbook examples of of walking into an ambush. And so after those, the government in Kiev basically said, fine, we'll negotiate a ceasefire, we'll get this power brokered plan that the French and the Germans, again, and this should have been your first clue, everybody's first clue, because they ignored the French and the Germans in 2014, and that's how the crisis erupted in the first place. And oh, fine, we'll, we'll set up a negotiated reintegration of these two regions. And then they proceeded to do absolutely nothing to implement any of their obligations from these agreements. You had the OSCE monitoring mission that did the exact same thing that they did in Kosovo. It basically ignored any Ukrainian violations of the ceasefire while allowing the State Department to claim that it was the Russian separatists shelling Ukrainian civilians. And you had advisors to the Ukrainian government saying, oh, we should do the same thing as Croatia did with the Serbs you know, sign an armistice and then get armed uh, weapons and training from the West. And then when the time comes, just roll it and crush them. Well, Russia knew all of this. And for years, they were basically saying, we need to implement the Minsk agreements. And the State Department would go, no, you need to implement the Minsk agreements. And Moscow would say, wait a minute, but we're not a party to this. We're a guarantor of them. And we don't, this is all about Ukraine giving these regions autonomy and regulating their status. What's there for us to do? And the State Department will just keep repeating their talking points, not even addressing the, the Russian questions. Last fall, the government in Moscow basically said, look, Ukraine is becoming a NATO armed camp. We have security concerns. You violated these security concerns. Here's a security proposal. It's the bare minimum of what we're willing to do. What do you say to it? And the Americans in NATO basically said, yeah, you don't have the right to tell us what to do. We can do whatever we want, and any country in the world has the sovereign right to decide what to do with its own alliances, with the unspoken part being so long as that choice is to join NATO and the West. And their answer came in January. Russia's answer came in February. They recognized Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states, signed a mutual assistance treaty. Donetsk and Lugansk invoked the mutual assistance treaty and said, we're under Ukrainian aggression, please help. On paper, legally, you know, the forms were observed, and Russia sent in troops to, uh, in their own words, demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. 
Well, in Western narrative, this is a completely unprovoked aggression done by Russians because they're simply evil who, and they, they want to genocide Ukrainians and annex their territory and recreate both the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire at the same time because they're just evil. I mean, you, you don't have to be a sophisticated political analyst to recognize that this so-called analysis uh, is, is garbage. It's, it's a narrative that can be sold to children who grew up on Marvel movies. But it's not something that, you know, any serious adult human can reasonably entertain. I have my own opinions about what Russia may, should have, or could have done over the past decade when it came to Ukraine, um, and and of the whole uh, issue of soft power, which Moscow apparently doesn't believe in. But there's just no arguing that the government in Kiev literally admitted that they had absolutely no interest in implementing the Minsk ceasefire, that they only wanted to bide their time until their military was strong enough to retake Donbass and Crimea, by the way, by force, and that this would have put them on a collision course with Russia sooner or later. And I think in, in retrospect, when you put all this together, it becomes abundantly clear that Moscow just pulled the trigger first. And again, I mean, you could argue about technicalities of this. Uh, according to Moscow, all the forms were you know, properly observed. You had they recognized these republics. They requested military aid. All was done according to the letter of the law. And you know, if NATO doesn't recognize that letter of the law because law is whatever they say it is, well, that's their problem. So you can definitely see, you know, I can definitely see the Russian perspective on this. And the problem with NATO's narrative, the problem with NATO's perspective is that they're essentially projecting their feelings towards the Serbs and Serbia in the 1990s. And here I am going back to the issue again, but it's unbelievably parallel. They're currently acting towards Russia the same way they were acting towards Serbia. They accused Serbia of committing aggression against Croatia and Bosnia. They sanctioned Serbia over a false claim of invading Bosnia and shooting down humanitarian planes. And they're essentially trying to impose the same kind of sanctions, cancel Russia the way they canceled Serbia in the 90s, and expecting that the end game is going to be the same, that you know, they will achieve regime change and partition Russia and you know, reconstitute Ukraine and its pre-2014 borders and expand NATO to the east and single-handedly dictate their hegemony to the world and everything will be the way it was. I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think people in the West realize that that ship has sailed. So what do you think the future looks like for Ukraine? Do you think it'll be partitioned or will like the Ukrainian state even exist when it's all said and done after all of this? What do I think is most likely? You know, people will read into this one no matter what I say. It's very thankless to try to predict the outcomes of this. The possibilities range from, you know, Ukraine losing the regions that are currently under control of Russia and the people's, the two republics and signing some sort of peace agreement. That's very unlikely, however. Um, there's also a possibility that Russia will advance further west and claim even more territory and then impose a peace agreement on a rump Ukrainian state. That is somewhat more likely. There is a, also a possibility that Ukraine will entirely cease to exist, that you know, Russia will just take it over and whether outright or... I don't think it's going to happen outright. It's, this thing is very unlikely. But basically, the conflict will continue until the re, you know, whichever regime in Kiev whether Zelensky's or somebody else's, sues for peace and then accepts uh, sovereignty over what's left of Ukraine, whether that's you know the Western provinces bordering Poland up to Kiev or, or anything in between. I, honestly, here, here's the issue. This is not really about Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was put in an impossible position willingly. They, they wanted to be the Western foot soldiers. They believed whether their own fa fairy tales or those peddled by NATO, that you know they could take on Russia and win, that you know the entire might of the West was behind them, and that with this combined might of the West and their wonder weapons, they will, you know, drive to Moscow and overthrow Putin and become heroes. Obviously, that's ridiculous, but they put themselves in a position where they stand to lose great amount of territory at the very least. 
and perhaps even lose their sovereignty outright and become some kind of vassal state, whether of Russia or of Poland, whatever remains of them. And honestly, like I would a month ago, two months ago, I would have still urged them to sign a peace treaty, no matter how painful it looked. But as of today, or mid-July, when Putin literally said at the summit in Tehran that he doesn't trust Ukrainians and he sees it as pointless to negotiate with them because they had initially agreed in late March to some kind of proposal in Istanbul and then backtracked on it after the visit by Boris Johnson and, and after Johnson told them, the, the British Prime Minister told them, oh, well, if you're willing to make peace, we're not and we'll continue fighting Russia uh, and sanctioning Russia, so you better do it as well and otherwise you'll lose our support. Putin basically said, I don't have anything to negotiate with Ukrainians. And so they're in a position where even if they wanted to surrender today, Russia won't accept that. And so the conflict has to continue up until they demonstrate that they're willing to fulfill their obligations, which is something that they haven't been able to do since 2014. And so Ukraine is in a, in a, in a horrible position. I feel, I feel terrible for the for the population there, because again, I've lived through the Bosnian War. The artillery, I've, I've been under artillery. It is the understatement of the century to, to, to describe it as unpleasant. It is horrifying. It is dreadful. It, to endure this for years is, uh, with ceasefires and all, I've, I've been at war for over three, you know, three and a half, almost four years. And I understand what a lot of people there are going through, in as much as anybody in the West can. And so if I were in their shoes, I would urge them to, to make any kind of peace, even a terrible one, which is better than this kind of war. But that plea will fall on deaf ears, and this is unfortunately going to have to unfold and play out until somebody somewhere is willing, who is credible, who can deliver on their promises and not just make promises, negotiates a better deal. I see. Now, I'm hearing some rumors of a set of new tensions popping off in the Balkans now. Do you know what's going on there? And is this connected to the Russo-Ukrainian conflict by any chance? So from what I've heard as well, the Germans, the, the British, and to some extent, the Americans have also have boosted their diplomatic and to some extent military efforts, especially in Bosnia. Uh, diplomatic efforts in Serbia. There's there's uh, things happening in North Macedonia right now. They're trying to break the government there to essentially strike a deal with Bulgaria that would enable it to join the European Union eventually again. And I believe it's also been greenlit for membership in NATO. Basically, NATO is trying to secure the flank. They need the Balkans pacified in same thing that happened in World War One. same thing that happened in World War II. If you want to fight Russia, you have to have the Balkans pacified. That's the, that's the logic of geopolitics, and some things never change, regardless of the technology. The problem with this is obviously that the Serbs, both in Bosnia and in Serbia proper, are overwhelmingly sympathetic to Russia. And the harder the Western-funded NGOs work at trying to change that, the less successful they are. And the current government in Serbia insists that they will continue on their path of joining the European Union, but the European Union literally just told them in June that in order to hope to join, they must do two things. They must impose sanctions against Russia, and they must recognize Kosovo as independent. These two things are something that no Serbian politician, if they want to stay not just in power but alive, can do. They're simply impossible. It's, it's just not physically possible for a Serbian ruler to do this and not face some sort of popular rebellion. They might hope that, you know, this astroturfing since the color revolution has, has been successful enough to pacify the people. But um, according to the latest polls, over 85%, I believe, people in Serbia are against sanctions to Russia and about the same percent is against joining the European Union if it involves recognizing Kosovo. So it's a losing proposition. And they, they can't do it overtly. They would have to do it slowly and covertly. And there's there's a strong grouping of, of uh, people in Serbia who actually blame 
the current government of trying to do just that. And there's the pro-Western opposition that's saying, oh, no, the government isn't doing enough. But what it all amounts to, not to go into too fine, uh, fine details, is that you have the British, the Germans, and the Americans putting pressure on the Balkans as a way of sort of fighting Russia by proxy, whereas Moscow isn't really doing anything except saying, well, you know, we support Serbian sovereignty and we support the UN resolution guaranteeing its territorial integrity and don't recognize Kosovo. And that's the extent of Moscow's influence in the area. You know, there's there's like one Russian media outlet, which is Sputnik in Serbian, that's operating in that media space. And there's, you know, Turkish, uh, American, British, uh, German, Al Jazeera, all, all of these other media houses are, are racing each other to sort of saturate that media space, which is comparatively tiny. I mean, the entire area doesn't have 20 million people on a good day. But you have all of these Western efforts to just carpet bomb this area with, with propaganda and NGOs and you know various agencies and financial aid obviously being directed to people who are serving their interests. There's just kind of part humorous, part uncanny. And of course, none of it is actually bettering the lives of people in the region who which have been uniformly miserable since Yugoslavia's breakup. Pretty crazy stuff we see here. Now, I think this is a good place to wind things down a bit. Uh, Naboja, thank you so much for coming on. Where can my audience stay up to date on your latest work? So my most recent opinion pieces, which have been few and far between, are up on RT's website still. Uh, I also have a Telegram channel called The Nebulator. And uh, that link can be found in my Twitter bio, which is literally just my name with all the special characters shaved off. At, so it's at Nebojshamalic. That's basically the easiest way to find me these days. And of course, my entire archive of antiwar.com articles is still up on their website. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you all to all my listeners for tuning in to another episode of El Nino Speaks. And with that... El Nino has spoken.